Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Historical Jesus, Part 2, The Birth of the Messiah. Drawing on the promises God gave Abraham and David and the historical events prior to Jesus' life, we can get an idea of what messianic expectations were like when Jesus of Nazareth was born. In this lecture, learn how the birth of the Messiah both fulfilled prophecy as well as set the stage for what Jesus' ministry would be like. After seeing all of the remarkable events surrounding the birth of this baby, we can't help but ask the question, who will this child grow up to be? To watch the video of this class or download course notes, visit restitutio.org. Welcome to the Historical Jesus Part 2, The Birth of the Messiah. This is a quote I want to share with you from Philip Schaff. He writes, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of the orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. I thought that was a great summary of how Jesus is so phenomenally popular and attractive, and yet at the same time different than many of the other people of ancient times that you might compare him to. Before I get to that... We have four primary sources for the life of Jesus. There are other statements about Jesus, like, for example, the Apostle Paul a couple of times mentions something about the life of Jesus. But the primary sources we have are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are differences between the Gospels. They're not, it's not just the same Gospel over and over again. They're, they're Gospels from different angles, okay? And so Mark is the shortest Gospel. It's very action-packed the word immediately occurs over 40 times in the Gospel of Mark because everything's immediately happening on to the next thing. And there aren't very many teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's more just focused on his deeds. And then Matthew focuses on convincing, practicing Jews that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So Matthew tends more towards the Jewish side, whereas Luke is focused on explaining Christianity to Gentiles people without a Jewish background. And John looks at Jesus' self-understanding as God's sent son. And so in John, you get a lot of these statements of the relationship and the intimacy of the father and the son that you don't get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so for the birth of Jesus, which is where you you just got to start, right? With the birth of Jesus, we have to look at Matthew and Luke because the two of them both give us information about the birth of Jesus, whereas Mark and John don't get into it. 
Matthew looks at things from the perspective of Joseph, and Luke looks at things from the perspective of Mary. And so between the two of them, we get a nice full picture of what happened. And I want to get to the first page of Matthew, but before I do that, I want to look at two promises. The promises God made to Abraham, and then the promises God made to David. So I have these verses up here on the screen for you. Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8. God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So that's God's promises to Abraham. Now, Abraham is 2,000 years, more or less, before Christ. Okay, so that's a long time before Christ. Abraham is as far away from Christ as we are away from Christ today. Just to give some perspective on this. And so, just to summarize these promises, I have four main points here. One is that God says, you will be a father of a multitude of nations. The second is that kings will come from you. The third, that God, Yahweh will be God to you and your offspring. And the fourth is that he will give the land to your offspring, to you and your offspring. Well, these promises, I mean, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible and how things unfold in the history of ancient Israel, you know that these things were all fulfilled to varying degrees. They did get the land. There were kings. God was with them. They were His people. But by the time of Christ, there was a lot of disillusionment. There was a lot of people feeling like these promises to Abraham have hit the floor. And uh, the reason why is because by the time of Jesus, there had been these series of empires that took over the world, one after the other. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And they absorbed all these little nations that had descended from Abraham into themselves. And the second point, yeah, kings had come, many kings. But, you know, the kings mostly neglected God. And by the time of Christ, the Romans were in charge. The Roman Empire was in charge. Not a king of Israel, but a Gentile, a Roman. And they had been occupying Judea. By the time of Christ, they'd been occupying Judea for over 60 years. They had been in charge. Uh, number three here, that he will be God to you and your offspring. By the time of Christ, more than a century had passed since God had intervened and helped His people out of bondage. Uh, it was about 170 years before Christ, there was a situation where God had mightily delivered His people from the oppression of Antiochus and another empire, but it had been a long time. And the people, I'm sure, were feeling haggard from this occupation, from living in the land of Abraham, but not owning the land that God gave to Abraham. 
And they had to pay taxes to Rome. And they had to put up with soldiers marching through their land. And they had to put up with these horrible governors that would do things to defile what God says is holy. The other promise to think about is God's promises to David. And this is in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. And this is about a thousand years after Abraham and a thousand years before Christ. So that's interesting, right? So you have two thousand years before Christ, you have Abraham, then a thousand years before is David, and then you have Christ a thousand years after that. This is what God says to David through the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, this is the high point where King David says, I want to build God a house. And God sends his prophet and says, God's going to build you a house, a lasting dynasty. And he's going to give you all of these promises. He's going to establish the kingdom of David's son forever. David's son is going to build a house for God's name. Number three, God is going to be a father. David's son will be God's son. And number four, when he goes wrong, when David's son goes wrong, he will discipline him, but not take his steadfast love away from him. But yet again, a thousand years later, by the time of Christ, by the time that all these different things have passed, it had been four, uh, it had been six centuries since there was a king of the sons of David. Six centuries. Now look, there were kings. This did come true. And for four centuries, the kings of David ruled. They did rule for four centuries. But then that ended, and it had now been longer than the whole time they ruled since they hadn't been ruling, and it seemed like hope was lost. You know, David, number two here, David's son will build a house. David's son did build a house. Solomon, right? Solomon built a house for God, the temple. But then eventually that temple was destroyed in the year 586. And then 70 years later, it was rebuilt. But there was no incredible display of God's glory indicating that he came back to his temple like it was when Solomon built it. And so by the time of Christ, the temple situation is a little different because this horrible ruler named Herod the Great, whom I like to call Herod the Worst, had, had renovated the temple and made it into this beautiful building overlaid with gold and marble. But at the same time, he wasn't even really one of God's people. And he didn't follow the righteous ways of God at all in his own life. And so a lot of people, even before that, had declared that the temple was defiled and they weren't going to have anything to do with it. And that there's, there's a whole group called the Essenes who went off into the desert and said, we're, we're just going to go and be holy in the desert because the whole system is corrupt. And then number three there, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. You know, God had been a father to these kings, but a lot of these kings rejected God as their father. You read through the book of the kings of Israel, they reject God as their father. Solomon himself, by the end of his life, brings child sacrifice into the kingdom. 
and offers children to Moloch, the pagan god. So there's a lot of disillusionment by the time of Christ. And eventually, you know, God had... See number four here, when he goes wrong, I will discipline him. These sons of David, whether Solomon or Rehoboam, or you want to look at Asa and Jehoshaphat, these other kings that came after him, God did discipline them. He would send prophets, and he would say to them, straighten out, repent, come back to me. And sometimes they would, very few times, and then most of the time they wouldn't, right? And eventually it got to such a point where God said, that's enough, I'm dissolving the kingdom. The kingdom is, is ending, the last king, Zedekiah, that was it. And that had been nearly 600 years before the time of Christ. And so by the time of Christ, my point is that people are feeling disillusioned. They're like, yeah, there were these promises God made to Abraham, and, and we are in the land, but we're not, we don't really own the land. And yeah, God made these promises to David that there would be this ruler, that there would be kings, but we don't really have a king. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to recognize the audacity of this first line. He says, the book, this is the first line of the first gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the first thing he says about Jesus. This is a bold statement. Because Christ means Messiah. Messiah is an anointed king. So your, your first line is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the king, the anointed king. And then you're going to say that he's the son of David. Well, the son of David is the one God promised to establish his throne forever. This is not a small concept. And the son of Abraham is the descendant that needs to restore the land because they're living in it, but they're not in possession of it like God promised to Abraham and his descendants. He would give the land. And so what Matthew does here in writing these words is he sets expectations up here for the rest of the gospel. You're saying this guy is the one, the Messiah, that these promises have not fallen to the ground and that God is doing something, has done something with this person, and it's huge. It's not just like we restored the kingdom, you know, and it lasted for 40 years. I mean, this is much bigger than even that. This is the Messiah. And then what follows in the rest of chapter 1 of Matthew is a list of ancestors. Now, to you and me, this is not the most exhilarating part of the Bible to read, if you've ever read a genealogy before. But that's also because in our culture, we don't understand kings and queens and monarchies and having an heir and being able to trace back and authenticate that you are the proper descendant of the proper line going all the way back. But that's exactly what they needed to hear. That's, that's how you show that Jesus is a legitimate heir to the throne, is you have to trace him all the way back. So what does Matthew do? He starts in Abraham, and he goes all the way down to David, and then he goes all the way down to Jesus. And he says, see, that's his pedigree. And so the genealogy, the purpose of it is to authenticate that Jesus is a legitimate claim, has a legitimate claim to the throne. We're going to flip over to Luke now and take in a little bit of the perspective from Mary here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, we read, And behold, this is the angel Gabriel to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Six centuries. I mean, that's like twice the whole history of the United States. Right? More than twice. That's a long time to hold on to a promise. And now there's an angel talking to this wonderful woman of God saying, you're going to have him. He's going to get the throne of his father, David. I mean, this is just like fireworks going off. In he- well, we'll get to that um, in, in, with the shepherds. But, I mean, it's just huge what's going on here. And verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I love it when the Scripture does that. He says he's going to reign over Israel forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Totally unnecessary repetition to make the point it's definitely going to happen, right? So the name Jesus, just so you know, means Yahweh is salvation. It's not a special name. Lots of people were named Jesus in the first century. Tons and tons of Jesuses are from the first century. Um, this Jesus is the Jesus for us, obviously, because of what he, who he is and what he, what he did and what he's going to do. Uh, but the name itself is not... You know, like in our culture, if you ran into somebody named Jesus, you would be like, what's going on here, right? But in their culture, it wouldn't be like that. And so, but his name does mean Yahweh is salvation. So it was very common, like Joshua is for us today, to distinguish Jesus from other Jesuses, people commonly called him Jesus of Nazareth, right? Or Jesus the Nazarene. Why? Nazareth is a tiny podunk town in the middle of nowhere. There weren't a lot of people from Nazareth of any name, okay? And so if you're in a place outside of Nazareth, you were like, oh, this is Jesus from Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene, okay? It has nothing to do with the Nazarite or growing your hair long or not drinking wine. Jesus drank a lot of wine. So, I mean, Nazarene is about the place he was born, not about the Nazarite vow. Sometimes we get that confused. Um. The, the other point, too, is when he's in Nazareth, they call him by a different name. They, they say to him, oh, this is Jesus, the carpenter's son. Because Jesus of Nazareth wouldn't work in Nazareth because everyone's in Nazareth, in Nazareth. So there you have it. However, where this prophecy that the angel gives gets interesting is when he calls him the son of the Most High, when the angel says God will give him David's throne. Hello, David's throne doesn't even exist. We're talking about restoring, bringing something up from the dead 586 years before, and now you're going to bring it to light. How is that going to happen? This is not even just another Jesus or even a Davidic king. This, and then what he says is this one is going to rule forever. That's a destiny right there. Saul, the first king of Israel, he reigned 40 years. David, 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. A lot of the other kings, less than 40 years, you know, 20 years, 10 years. You know, the longest one was a little over 50 years, and he was also the worst. And this one is going to be forever. Uh, the next verse, Luke 1.34 says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore... The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
With Jesus, we encounter something totally new. Jesus will not have a human father. God will be his biological father. This fulfills God's promise to David that he will be a father to David's son. Literally, he's the father of this son of David. And then in verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. To her credit, Mary had faith. Regardless of the circumstances, she committed to the prophecy, throwing herself headlong into the care of God. I mean, when I ponder what Mary was up against here, it's really spectacular. First of all, she's engaged. She has a fiancé. His name is Joseph, right? So you have Mary and you have Joseph. They're in an engagement together. This is going to destroy that relationship. You're going to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, that's going to be a little awkward, right? Imagine that conversation. You know, and if, if she gets found guilty of adultery, I mean, she's pregnant before she's married, right? So if she gets found guilty of adultery, the village will execute her. That's the law. Her reputation, if she survives, if they choose not to ex execute her, her reputation is going to be ruined. Thirty years later, after this, Jesus is in a heated argument with some other Jews, and they say to him, we were not born of fornication, as if to throw it in Jesus' face that he was born of fornication, because there was this rumor that you just don't escape in small-town country living. I mean, maybe if you went to the big city, but they stayed there, or Jesus grew up in Nazareth. If she became a single mom, if Mary became a single mom, how is she going to take care of herself? This is not 2016. This is the year, like, one. <laughs> it's actually B.C., but that's another subject. How could she take care of this baby? Women's primary role in this time was in the home. They depended on the father to take care of them, and then the husband, once they got married, for income. There was begging. She could glean from the edges of the fields during the harvest time. You could try to sell some things, but there just wasn't much opportunity, and a lot of women turned to prostitution. I mean, it was a tough time to be a single I mean, there's no easy time to be a single mom, but this was a really, really hard time to be a single mom. And yet, she said yes. With, I mean, she understands her culture better than we understand her culture. She knows the risk involved in, in having a pregnancy outside of wedlock way better than, than we do. And she says, I'm going to trust God that he knows what he's doing. I'm just going to trust him. This is an angel. That's a big deal. This is the Messiah. Hello. I'll take it. And she's like, come what may, I'm in. I'm a bondservant of the, of, that's what she says here, right? I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And I don't know how God picked Mary, you know, out of all the different people that were alive at that time, but, you know, it says that she had found favor in God's eyes. You know, there was something about her that God saw that's, that was um, warranted his sending the angel to her. And then we look at Joseph's side of the equation. Matthew chapter 1 Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
So, I mean, I can't even imagine the conversation. Mary comes home one day and she's like, I got something to tell you. I know we're engaged, but I'm pregnant. And Joseph knows, you know, you know, it's not, it's not yours. Right? I mean, you know. I mean, this is, this is a society where women cover their heads and their faces. I mean, there, it's just a totally different, and, and to get pregnant is just, and he, he probably said to her, Mary, come, what do you, who's the father? She said, well, you know, God. <laughs> the Holy Spirit overshadowed me, and uh, the child is going to be the Messiah. <laughs> come on. I mean, what's Joseph going to say to that? So you're basically not going to tell me what happened, Mary. <laughs> who, knows, who knows what they said? I, I certainly don't. But Joseph decided to divorce her because in their culture, the parents would be the ones who had arranged this marriage. This is not just like the sort of thing where you just return a ring and then you, you, you just cut your losses and move on with your life. I mean, their, their money has already changed hands. I mean, there's a whole cultural situation going on here. And um, the engagement was as binding as the marriage itself. So he's going he's gonna to divorce her, and then he has a dream. Martin Luther King had a dream. Joseph had a dream. That was yesterday, Martin Luther King Day. All right, Matthew 1.20. Some of you were like, who, what? But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love this. Joseph is a man of faith. He's a man of faith. He's a man that gets a dream from God, can tell if it's a dream from God or just his own dream, and then act on it with radical trust. And for that, I admire Joseph, just like I admire Mary for her trust. He actually believes Mary now, and he's going to take Mary under his protection, He's going to agree to father this child. He's, he's going to throw in his lot with her. They're both going to suffer the embarrassment of a pre-marriage pregnancy in that society. He's taken on a lot. So Mary is a great woman of courageous faith. Joseph is a great man of courageous faith. And they have this, this level of trust. And this is what God wants from us. They're examples for us of what kind of trust God wants from us. Will you be a Mary or a Joseph in your generation? Following Christ is not about playing it safe, as we'll come to see. And so the story goes on. Mary has this amazing prayer of praise where she just extols and lifts up God. And then there's this decree for everyone to go back to their hometown for a census. And so Joseph goes back to his hometown, a place called Bethlehem. Well, why is that significant? There was a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the leader is going to come from Bethlehem. And so she goes along with him. Why does she go? You ever wonder that? Why does she go with him to Bethlehem? Why does she just stay home? You know, but she goes with him to Bethlehem, and then 
there's no room in the inn, and it's the time, and there's no time anymore. And so she gives birth, and she lays the baby in a manger, which is just a really nice way to say feeding trough. And God is just beaming in heaven, just beaming in heaven at this whole thing. The reason why I know that is because he sends an angel to random shepherds. I mean, these guys are just like, it's just like another night for these guys. They got the sheep, and they're just chilling, right? Probably chilling in the sense of being cold. Who knows? But um, they're, they're, just, they're just out there, and an angel shows up. And it's not just a normal angel. Usually when angels show up, it just looks like a regular person, right? This angel's like from heaven, and there's glory, and it's like a spotlight on all of them shining around them. And the message they hear is, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, there's David again, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, right? That's the message the angel gives to these random shepherds that you never hear from again in the rest of the whole Bible. You don't even get their names, right? I get the impression that God is so overjoyed by this whole Operation Messiah, by it happening in Bethlehem, by finding two people that are like, yes, whatever you say, we're willing to do it. And the baby is crying in the crib. Well, it's a manger, but you know what I mean? And he's got to tell somebody. So he's like, all right, you guys. And then the one angel is delivering the message, right? And then suddenly heaven erupts with all these angels. It says a whole host of heaven. And they're all shouting out, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And, they, and the, the shepherds go and they, they find Mary and Joseph. They find the baby and they're like, Mary, Joseph, you won't believe what we just saw. Who is this baby? The angel said it's the Messiah. The Messiah. That's what the angel, we don't even, we're not used to seeing angels, but this one, it said the Messiah, the Lord. You know, and then, then they leave, right? They, they go back to the sheep. And Mary's treasuring these things up in their heart. Eight days pass, they go to the temple. Because on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses, you circumcise a child. They circumcise a child. They make the proper offering um, for that. And this old man, Simeon, who's a faithful man of God, been praying. And God had said to Simeon, before you die, you're going to see the Lord's Christ. Before you die, you're going to see the Messiah. Simeon, before you die, you're going to see the one that's going to save the world. So Simeon is an old man. And, you know, people come in with babies all the time. It's what you do. On the eighth day, everyone who has a male child is going to, you know, so I don't know how Simeon knows, but Simeon knows. He goes up to Mary and Joseph. He goes to the baby. and He's like, this is the one. This is the one. And he praises God. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. The boy's name is Yahweh is salvation, Jesus. And then there's this 84-year-old Anna that you never hear about before or after. And she's a, a very faithful prayer warrior. And she comes up and she believes that this baby is the one as well. And all this confirmation is going into it. And so God has this Messiah born. You know, it begs a few questions to ask yourself. Who will this baby grow up to be? What will he do? How will he ascend to the throne of David? How will he restore the land back to Abraham's descendants? 
How will he save his people from their sins? Next time we'll see how the political powers reacted to this baby Messiah. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.